Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Tashinsky, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Andy. My fact this week is that there was a job in the 19th century which just involved looking at the sea and being able to tell when there were pilchards under the surface. <laughs> Amazing. So were they, they weren't sticking their head under the sea. <laughs> no, don't be crazy, James. They were... Okay. <laughs> a little bit of inside baseball. Dan told us before we started recording, that's what he thought the job was. Yeah, and I told you before the recording specifically so it wouldn't get mentioned on the recording. And look at, look at us now. Uh, um, um, this is an amazing job, and it's yeah. not. And it's not like they're sitting like a lifeguard on a boat looking down. They're up on a hill. They are. They're, they're not even in the sea. Hill or a cliff. So I should say where this comes from. It comes from this brilliant blog called About Eighteen Sixteen, which is by uh, an author called James Hobson, who's written loads of books about Georgian Britain. There's one about stagecoaches, which I was reading recently, and he also writes about Cornish pilchard culture in the 18th century. And... An obvious crossover. <laughs> <laughs> and well, there were these. It was this huge part of Cornwall's economy in the in the 18th century was pilchard fishing because yeah. they were these fish that came to the coast by the million, uh, millions and millions of them. This job was called being a hewer, literally like hue and cry, you know, shouting. And they would stand on the high points along the coast. And when they saw this moving patch of purpley, oily colour on the surface, they knew that was the sign that there was the huge... Um, I was about to say flock, a shoal of pilchards underneath it. And maybe there were some seabirds hanging around it as well. And then they would blow a special trumpet or they would wave their little flags and they would shout, go and get the pilchards to the fishermen. And then the fishermen would go and... No, they wouldn't. They would shout, Heather! <laughs> True. Yeah. And Heather! What does, what does that mean, Heather? It's an old word meaning fish in Cornish. Ah, fish! But now you get Heather cake if you go to a Cornish bakery. Do you? But it's right. not fish cake. Oh, it's just, just related nice, to nice um, cake. the cake that was baked for these fishermen when they would leave mm. a day out. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the trumpet thing, by the way, hewing is an old word for trumpeting. According ah, to the OED, oh, apparently, nice. yeah. And it's not. This is not like your regular trumpet. This was a four-foot trumpet. Was it? Yeah, it's huge, it's ginormous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they cool. they had these flags as well. So they would wave semaphore flags, which had special meanings to communicate to the boats, like go over there or come this way a bit or whatever. Because um, then oh. they directed the boats, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Seen them, because Wilkie Collins, obviously, you know, famous Victorian author, but he also wrote a bunch of essays, and one of them was about these mm. hewers, and he described <laughs> them as feverishly waving two cloth-covered bushes, acting the part of a maniac of the most dangerous character. Because <laughs> yeah. they're just standing on a cliffside. Cloth-covered bushes. Like before, they had flags. They had to cover a bush in cloth and wave it. It's weird. Yeah, they could have just waved around the cloth. You would think. Yeah. What would they, presumably, if you had spotted, you've sounded your horn, yep. you've got your semaphore flag out, bush. Pres- presumably you've, you've sounded the horn because you've seen pilchards. Yeah. Okay. You've seen them over Otherwise, that way. you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your job. Exactly. You do it any old time. It's the, main, it's the main purpose of the job. You've pointed your flag at the direction. What semaphore needs to happen? What are you trying to communicate with the semaphore? You're telling the boat where they are specifically. So yeah. you're saying, left. go to the right, go to the left, go out to sea, come closer. Okay. Yeah. Right. Or drop your nets there kind of thing. Yeah. It was probably less complex semaphore and more just pointing a flag to the right or to the left. Yeah. Well, no, I'm pretty it was, sure it was proper. It was proper. I've, oh, I've looked up the signals. Yeah, yeah. I've looked up the signals. It wasn't just 
you know, so left for they? left. And I take. It I mean, back. <laughs> this is the worst possible medium to communicate what the semaphore <laughs> signals could were. Explain. You know? yeah. But it's just like you said, James. There would be go east or go right off, which means go straight out. Oh, yeah. Doesn't mean go right. Um, and and cast net. Um, uh, yeah. But they would also they had they could get messages to ships, so they could signal to a man on board a ship that his wife had had a baby. Ah, yeah. In I don't. In, I don't know what the semaphore for that was. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good. They're seriously oily. That's, yeah. I'd never really understood when people talk about oily fish and the non-oily fish and they bang on about oily fish being really good for you um what really what the difference was but that's why they were prized so in the 19th century they were prized for their oil for lamps weren't they yeah. and yes. so that would just be sold and that would fund the whole industry yeah and, and you'd have these pilchard palaces yeah where they put all the fish in a barrel put six thousand fish in a, a huge hogshead barrel and then i think you squeeze down on the fish and all the oil comes out and drains off into the gutters, and then that's barreled up separately. Yeah. Right. And then you burnt. You can use it for lamps and things yeah. like that. Well, they used to just hand them out as well to anyone who was quite poor. So as the boats would come back in, there's reports that you would have locals standing in the water just waiting for it to come in and say, can you please just give me pilchards? <laughs> and the person the, who's on the ship would feel it was honour-bound to give the pilchards, so they would just hand them out. And then at the palaces as well, there would be the poor waiting outside, and they would be waiting for fish that had, like, broken backs or that were diseased or, you know, the ones that were being <laughs> shot. <laughs> Imagine having yeah. to rifle through 30 million pilchards with a little x-ray machine to see if they've broken their spine. Oh, this one's got a bit of a cough. Shut that to the paw. Cross the line. But yeah, they did. And kids used to go to the beaches with plastic bags and kind of scoop them out of the water. But they've, it's not just today. Plastic pil- bags? Uh, but not plastic. <laughs> the century. In now. Cornwall. Is you know quite behind the times in some aspects, but in others, unbelievably advanced. It had the Tesco plastic bag well, had, as early as the 1400s. They had the oil to make it from, didn't they? Because yes. it was bloody pilchards. Exactly. Sorry, not plastic bags. Other bags, uh, non-plastic <laughs> bags. But yeah, so it was back in the 1800s. It was massive, and um, in 1871, they were exporting roughly 16,000 tons wow. uh, per year. Now. That declined massively in Cornwall, massively, 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 to the point of the 90s where they were only landing about six tons in total. So from 16,000 to six tons, and that's the early 90s. But then that all changed when a man called Nutty Noah came along and he reinvigorated the whole thing by rebranding the pilchard. I've seen Nutty Noah. I think he's making some strong claims. He's uh, huge, huge claims. Well, he's basically just a random fisherman. Is he from the south coast? Yes. Or from... What, what's he claiming? He's from Cad- Cadworth. Oh, he's from Cadworth? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I go to Cadworth every year. I've probably met him down the pub. <laughs> and I don't know if he's a guy who's reformed the whole industry. I mean, it's not like everyone's eating pilchards for every meal, right? No, but I mean, a lot of people, when you read interviews, sort of claim that he he called them Cornish sardines that suddenly was like ooh that sounds a bit posh well someone someone called them that isn't it? they have had a rebrand yeah exactly yeah. it wasn't it wasn't him but it was in that well actually it no it, it was him it, it was wasn't him. him it was a guy called Nick Howell yeah. I believe in Sorry, the 90s right. who um, yeah realised that pilchards had a bad reputation they're called sardines on the continent and so yeah they were called and pilchards are just adult sardines what we call sardines pilchards are like adult versions of that aren't and they're they? all herring and <laughs> they're all types of herring. What's, what was his connection then to Nutty Noah? Because Nutty Noah I don't was know who Nutty of, Noah oh, is. Oh, Nutty Noah was a guy called Martin Ellis, and he was basically the only. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you keep calling him Nutty Noah? Well, that's what he calls himself. It's his nickname. Um, and he he kind he, of um, he collected two of every nut, didn't he? <laughs> 
saved them when there was a big flood. Exactly. <laughs> Two peanuts. <laughs> well, ironically, apparently his ship sank. So I don't oh, think no. that's the story. Did you read this? Anna? No. He went. He took in too much pilchard. It's got too heavy, and his ship went down, and it had to be uh, rescued, Shit. and a helicopter had to come in to do it. A now, I can't rescue find... a whole ship. <laughs> I think sure. him and the pilchards possibly. Oh, so, not him. <laughs> So, take the pilchards first. But this one's got a broken back. I don't care. Women and pilchards first. Um, yeah, uh, he, but the point is, is I can't find any record of a helicopter picking up a pilchard man called Nutty Noah. So it's the story they, they that's told of him. Rescues out in Cornwall, you know. But they, they log them as well. There's a, there's a, you log rescues. You and, do have to log the rescues. Yeah. It's frowned on to just go around rescuing people. Did you and check not Nutty anyone. Noah and his actual name, Martin? Whatever. Good it point. Is. I just did Nutty Noah. I should go back and check Martin Ellis. <laughs> they, put, they wouldn't put it on the form, would they? Like per, person rescues. It was a massive list. There was six tons of pilchard that I had to get through <laughs> before to, his name came. Every individual one. Every, yeah. every Bobby, Billy, Sarah. <laughs> Uh, they are um, elsewhere it's not just Cornwall that has a monopoly on them um, and I actually when I was looking at my pilchard can and realised it came from South Africa I thought I wonder how many there are and there are shed loads in South Africa and they've turned it into a big tourist industry there and the sardine harvest the pilchard harvest is so massive that sometimes they don't need nets because the sea just dumps <laughs> piles on the beach right. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> the sea well, so just like get a tractor and or just, a dump truck. Exactly. Scoop it up. Wow. And yeah, they've got they've got oh. sort of festival days where they invite tourists to come and take part in various sardine marches and stuff like that. No one knows why they go there. But it's kind of a mystery because the shores of like northern South Africa where they hang out are not very appealing to sardines. And do we know why warm. they come to the to Cornwall? Are they mating or are they feeding or Ooh. we don't know. I think it's for feeding. Um uh. I think they're coming which way would they be coming? I think it's for feeding. Um, but that African sardine run that you mentioned, mm. Anna, that might be the biggest biological movement on the planet. Because there's also the East African wildebeest herds. Obviously, your individual wildebeest, a lot bigger than your individual pilchard. Yeah. But there are so many pilchards that they might outweigh all the wildebeest. It's hard to tell. Right. It's one of those classic, would you rather fight one wildebeest or Absolutely. a thousand pilchards? Yeah, yeah. It depends where you're fighting them. If you're in the sea... Mm. Yeah. I'll take on the wildebeest. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've challenged you, you, do, you are the one who gets to choose the location. Yeah, that's I would choose really actually cold. a hot air balloon for either, for either fight. That's clever. Yeah. Playing it that really safe. Don't yeah. even back yourself against the pilchards on the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why take the risk? <laughs> they have a tendency of disappearing and reappearing. So I think people keep blaming the decline of pilchard industry on like, people's declining tastes. But oh, yeah. they just bugger off sometimes. This is the thing with oily fish. is why you can't depend on them. Because they slip through your fingers. Because the, re- <laughs> the reason they're... It's not because of that. The reason they're oily is because they have to have loads of fat in their body. Because they're the fish that um, migrate huge distances in uh, massive shoals. Oh. So that's why you've got these oily fish. They're fish that pelagic, that live in the middle part of the sea. As opposed to all your white fish, which live at the bottom. Good word. Which I... Thank you very much. Um, I didn't make it up myself. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. 
They, so these shoals sometimes migrate somewhere different. So in 1820, we say the um, industry was massive. In 1820, they all disappeared and went to Ireland. And the Cornish were really furious. And there were articles written in the 1820s saying, you know, this is a complete disaster. The Irish don't like pilchers. They're just flocking to oh, Ireland. And the Irish are saying, really? we think these are disgusting. The Irish do have their own hewers, though, and they have their special laws for their hewers. So I think it's got oh. pilchered um, fancying has gone up and down. So has they it? have sometimes had a big hewering tradition. And then it just went out of fashion. Okay. Ooh. There's a special law in Ireland that if you're a hewer, you're allowed to stand on any private property to do your job. No way. What? Yeah. You, I mean, got, you can't go into the middle of that. Dublin like, and just stand in someone's I house. Need, I need to come into your bedroom now. <laughs> Presumably, it's someone's property that's on the coast. I've got right? reason to believe there are five million pilchards in this room. Let me in. Let me into this bank vault right now. Help me with my trumpet. <laughs> Can I just ask on the hewers, Andy, yeah. that you said it was a job, but they, yeah. I mean, the, the pilchers just turn up at one stage in the autumn, right? So what do they do for the rest? It's very seasonal, this job, isn't it? It is mm. seasonal work. You're absolutely right. They, uh, I don't, I imagine they uh, they had a kind of portfolio career. They might uh, be a these trumpeter guys. for the rest of the year. Yeah, I absolutely. Guess. Or yeah. a bush semaphore instructor. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of stuff they could do with yeah, their skills, yeah, you know, right. but they had... Um, yeah, they they did get paid a guinea a week during the oh, good times. Really? So maybe it was one of those jobs where, much like a tourist season today, actually, yeah. you know, it's very big in the high season, and then uh, you yeah. just sort of, yeah. you know, could be a signalman, yes, or woman, yeah, on the railways, on the railways, for example, airports, at the airports, the airports, could be a plastic bag maker. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the sound designer for the movie King Richard is called Richard King. So good. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So great. Did you just did you just spot this? No, this, someone else? this was a buddy of mine, Ali Plum. He's the BBC uh, Radio yeah. One music reviewer and interviewer. Um, he spotted it and he told me about it. And um, yeah, Richard King is, you know, he's he's actually quite famous as you can imagine he's he's part of this big movie he's won four oscars he's won four oscars wow. he's and he's you know he's been the sound designer for movies like the latest wonder woman 1984 uh tenet dunkirk so he's very tied in with christopher nolan he did interstellar with him do we know if richard king only took the job because he enjoyed the symmetry of the name um, or... oh i've got a, i've got a good reason why he might tenet is all about things being backwards as uh, well as yeah. forwards palindromic king richard richard king that's, it, it explains why he took the job, as well as him being a massively respected sound engineer and him needing the work. Um, <laughs> but for Tenet, this is one specific thing. So uh, I haven't seen Tenet. It sounds... Uh, I've seen it. So some things happen backwards, even though the world is happening forwards, yeah, right? Yeah, you've kind in, of got two parallel things that happen. One goes forward and one goes backwards. Why I haven't watched it. Um, but they had to make reverse gunshots. Yes. So, but they, they tried playing all the sound effects they had. You know, they have the sound effect of a gun, which is... Uh, Bang, and then. Like. Why didn't they just use you for this <laughs> But it's but it sounded rubbish. It sounded cheap and stupid when they just played the sounds backwards. So they had to generate new sounds of what, you know, uh, a plane taking off might sound like backwards yeah, but forwards. Yeah. Interesting. It's so weird because um. they could have just taken the original one and made it go backwards, right? Because right. they have that technology, but. They didn't have. quite sound right. They yeah. have the technology to make sound <laughs> rewind. <laughs> You're did. kidding. It's amazing. <laughs> How have they not shared this with Even the rest of us? Even 20 years ago, they had that. <laughs> but the thing is that King Richard is about tennis, and that 
movie is Tenet, so maybe he's just oh, working his way through the yes. yes. He's definitely got a word thing. He's the Susie Dent of the sound engineer world, <laughs> it sounds like. I don't know. I wonder if this movie does because they had a carpenter called James Crane. Carpenters might use cranes, mightn't they? Well, if, there's a, if there was a carpeting emergency 300 metres up, they might do, yeah. <laughs> okay, look. This, this hewer is, was stuck somewhere in Ireland. This is the one I'm opening with. <laughs> they had a health and safety manager called Guinevere Aid. Like first aid. Yeah, that's good. I think that's okay. good. Yeah. Yeah. And the tennis racket stringer uh, was called Jeffrey. I bat you one. That's not I true. bat no. you one. I bat you one. Yeah. How are you spelling it? How much have you I be- the pronunciation? No, no. I b a t u a n. I bat oh, you one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, good. that's extremely good. I, I would like definitely have opened with I bat you one rather than James Crane the carpenter. <laughs> If he'd been called James Plain, yeah, I'd have yeah, been absolutely yeah. on board. I'll be honest; like I was working off just basically all the people who worked on this show on IMDb, and it was Slim Pickings. <laughs> With Slim Pickings on it, <laughs> I love him. So, sound design has a, a nickname which is used within the industry which is called foley so you're a foley artist foley sounds within movies oh. uh, it's really amazing read and particularly if you read interviews with richard king he can make he can make something that is quite a boring sound suddenly seem like wow what a day that must have been of picking the sound for this tiny thing that i would never think about if if you're in a room and a door needs to be opened right you would think okay mm. there's probably just this bank of sound where it's just door opens mm. and he talks about it saying no the variety is endless you have doors that are opened because maybe they're open because there's a baby sleeping in the room so it's a soft opening so he's like you don't only have just the creaks of a door speed opening you have emotional content to the to the opening of the door and he's like so i have like you know he's got thousands of doors that he's collected door happy door (laughs) drunk door Um, Terminator 2 I was reading about um, the opening yeah. scene of Terminator 2 there's a sort of exoskeleton Terminator walking yeah. in a apocalypse over all these skulls and oh, stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so the ambient sound that you hear in that scene if you watch that scene next time is you've got someone having put a microphone just next to the crack in a door at at George Lucas's Skywalker ranch and just getting the ambience of the outside yeah. and that's mixed with someone going whoosh with their mouth whoosh so that's what you're hearing in the background. And then when, when this exoskeleton is standing on all of these human skulls, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pistachio nuts being crushed. Wow. So those are the elements that you see in that scene. And just how they get to thinking a pistachio nut can be yeah, yeah, yeah. a better yeah. sound than a real skull being crushed. is <laughs> also, sometimes easier to access pistachio nut shells than actual skulls, isn't it? If, yeah. you get if you get a pistachio nut, you know how they're like slightly open on one end? Yeah. If you just squeeze the slightly open end, then the lever mechanism will open the other end and you can just pull the top shell off and then just get to the inside without kind of are you sure that wow. actually works? Yeah, I do. It? Does it? Yeah. You would really? have been fired by Richard King immediately when you handed in your sound effects. <laughs> what, what the fuck is this, James? What I'm just thinking is when you watch actual tennis, right? You, someone does a serve and you hear the noise of the of the serve, and it's quite, it, you know, you you would know that noise if you heard it right. But I remember reading that sometimes in sports on TV, they add the sounds in later, right? I don't Mm -hmm. know if this is true, but I remember reading that like when a dart hits a dartboard, if you imagine yourself playing darts, they don't make that (laughs) when it hits it, right? But then some people do that. And I remember reading that 
in horse racing, there's no microphones on the far side, so there's no way you could make that sound. So I thought that they use wildebeest. They do. Is, is is right? They absolutely. They, they play that in. It's the sound of a. It's the sound of a stampeding wildebeest. Right. And they play, well, they play. They don't play it for the audience and the you know. No, no, obviously live, like but they TV. play it over TV. Yeah. What? So this is insane. I was reading about a guy called uh, Dennis Baxter who was the sound designer for the Olympics in 2012, and in fact, multiple Olympic Games. And this is exactly the problem, James, because loads of places, they don't have microphones for the whole thing, but they have to add microphones wherever they can and then sometimes cheat a bit. So for the balance beams, they would put microphones on the beam so no audience would ever hear the creaking and the movement of the beam, but you do on TV. And then for the archery, they had a microphone on the target, they had a microphone next to the archer for the launch, and they also put one in between on the arrow's path to capture the swoosh oh, nice. oh, so that, but they're catching the actual sound there they're not because for me I would probably get like um, a ruler on the side of a table <laughs> and then twang it <laughs> <laughs> that's um, genius yeah, yeah. But, the, but you're right they fake it sometimes so uh, Dennis Baxter he did the boat race for a while oh yeah. I was this in an interview with him yeah yes. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I've heard this it's and amazing the, the boat race if you're actually in the boats or on the bank what it sounds like is the engines of the support boats and the helicopters oh, flying cool. Overhead, yeah, and if yeah, you play yeah. that on TV, it would be an incredibly weird uh, experience. Yes, yeah. So he went out before the boat race. He recorded clean swooshing rowing sounds, huh. and that's what you're hearing. You're hearing you Dennis hear. Baxter rowing We're or someone him recording live. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How yeah. cool is that? And so it is cool. with tennis as well. It's a really precise job working out when to up the volume of the ball hitting sound and when yeah. to decrease it. And it depends completely on the tension and also the crowd sound. And I think he did. He does ground slams as well. And yeah, he talks mm. about you have to sense how tense a moment it is and then reduce the crowd sound or sense that, you know, everyone's getting really excited and then you bring up the crowd sound and then you wow. make the sound of the tennis ball hitting the ground a bit less, the crowd a bit higher. Is there someone doing the moaning as well? As the, as the, <laughs> that's him. That's his life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading about Foley and there was actually a film made about Foley art itself um, oh. and it's called Barbarian Sound Studio. It was a horror film. It was made in about 2012. Uh, it had some famous actors in it. Uh, it was meant to be okay. Anyway, it was partly about Foley art. So the main character is working in a movie studio and he's coming up with sound effects. And in this film, he has to come up with the sound effects for these really gory horror scenes. And he has to come up with these sound effects by smashing up pieces of fruit. Um, mm. The classic. Mm. So he's shown in this film smashing up watermelons or mangoes or whatever it takes. Yeah. But they realise when making this film that the sound of fruit smashing up... Um, it does not actually sound enough like the sound of fruit smashing up. <laughs> so they had to find some skulls and break them in, didn't they? <laughs> they couldn't. They couldn't get the skulls, but the sound of the fruit smashing up is made with uh, pieces of wet cloth and bits of wood being bashed around. That's amazing. That's so funny. That's, how meta is that? Yeah. We keep saying Foley. Uh, Jack Foley was a real person as well. Yeah. He. This was the person who created the idea that you could overdub within the the sort of behind the scenes of the movie, the post-production. And um, he his first job when he did it was he was working on a movie which was um, Showboat. And he his first, I think, one of his first things that he did for it was he walked as three people. So he had a cane and he had his own footsteps and he managed to match the footsteps of three people walking using both just his feet mm. and a cane. And that was that wow. was the moment when they went, oh my God, this is, what is this? And he started wow. experimenting That's more nice. Was it, it three one-legged people? No, I guess you could you can move <laughs> your feet quite fast to Got be it. in time with all of the feet, can't you? Um, so did he get people to close their eyes and say... 
three people are going to come in and out of this room and then you know did the three gates and then said it was all me oh i see no like i think he just showed them the product of the recording match with the film he could have been an incredible crim- master criminal you know make it look yeah. like a burglary was make, five people but it, actually it was one make it sound like a burglary was five people yeah. right. you know yes, that's true he'd be no good with an eyewitness <laughs> no he that he could only operate under conditions of pitch black yeah. darkness <laughs> but they would you know afterwards the security guard who'd been blindfolded he could rub spec savers exactly <laughs> again everyone would have to be blindfolded and in the area as well but then they would say afterwards oh yeah 15 large um, wildebeest wildebeest <laughs> came in to the shop and took all the glasses or herring we're not sure which <laughs> but he could do them so accurately and then because they, yeah. they'd, they'd never look for Jack Foley he, um, so he he died when he was uh, 76 years old and he reckoned he had a long career in well, movies or did he did, um, he, did he just make it sound like he, he died to uh, to continue his crime spree? <laughs> Good call, yeah. <laughs> That's a cold case, we don't know. But uh, he reckons he did 5,000 miles of walking in the time of his career for films. Mm. Um, he doesn't say whether or not that was like I was walking to to buy some pistachios or I assume it's the footsteps that have appeared on our screens. Yeah, I would assume um, so. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but um, also, he's, he's, his voice was on movies. He is responsible for the first ever, we believe... Tarzan call the very first yeah Tarzan the Tiger in 1929 was the first movie and it wasn't that though was it no he uh, it was just him going and that was supposedly Jack Foley it's sort of a bit lost whether or not it was him because I think the footage has itself been lost it's one of those lost films call the one that we know that goes ah it's like a palindrome isn't it yes fun facts about that and it's trademarked it's owned by the Edgar Rice Burroughs Mm. family and they've got the exact it's like nine calls or ten calls isn't it and it's an exhale well after Tenet and Tennis Richard King can do Tarzan next yeah Yeah. the film just about the Tarzan call how would you what would the title of that film be if it was just about the call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just wondering how you'd spell the film name. <laughs> just loads of A's, R- I R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R, I think. <laughs> you'd, you'd think it was a hospital drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shall we talk about the Williams sisters? Yeah. yeah. So this movie, um, King Richard... Uh, the King Richard in the title is the father of Venus and Serena Williams. And he, I don't think it gives anything away for the movie to say he was a very hot housing father who really wanted his children to be tennis players at a very, very young age. He'd never had any training, but he taught them how to become great tennis players and they were the greatest of all time. Um, I read an interview with Venus uh, from 1991. This was in Sports Illustrated. And even then she knew she wanted to be a tennis player. She was a brilliant tennis player. They said, what would you like to be when you grow up? She's like, I want to be a tennis player or an archaeologist or an astronaut who travels to Jupiter. Cool. Wow. <laughs> so that was her three possible things she wanted to be. Cool. Uh, and I looked it up because I wondered, and it is this is true, both Venus and Serena now own properties in the town of Jupiter, Florida. <laughs> no. So they kind of went, because a lot of sports people live in Jupiter. So, and they, yeah. Very That's nice. Cool, is that the Jupiter connection. she meant when she was five or whatever, do you think? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Just happens to be an astronaut, but lives but, in this tennis village. That's village, amazing. Venus Williams, yeah. one of the two Williams sisters. That's right. Yeah. Owns a quarter of a dolphin. <laughs> oh. 
Okay. A Miami Dolphin? A Miami Dolphin, yeah, yeah, the yeah, American yeah, football yeah. team. Uh, she has a stake. Oh, in the, she that? has a stake in the Miami Dolphins, and it's quite a small stake. With Serena. Uh, yeah, but I think her, so. It's about it's it's less than one percent that she, they own or that she owns. But anyway, if you include all the spare players they would have, it would work out at one quarter of one dolphin. Amazing! Wow. <laughs> That's really good. Wait, and it's That's both great. of them that own it. Then is it? it? It's quite hard to find the exact chapter and verse on how much they own or whether they own it together. You can understand why that hasn't been too extensively reported on. I guess <laughs> with all the stuff out there about the Williams sisters. But, so. Um, in 1995, Serena was 14 and she wanted to go pro and she was too young by the rules. And so she filed a lawsuit, uh, an antitrust lawsuit against the um, WTA, I think. Really? Saying I should be able to play. And actually, their dad had a bit of a vault vass in their early teens because he suddenly realized that tennis can really screw you up. And yeah. the junior tennis uh, circuit, all the parents were just awful there was a little bit of racism around and he actually said to I think Venus I don't think you should become a tennis player but she must have thought well thanks a lot Dan but yeah Serena tries to do this lawsuit to That's say that really you have to let me in even though I'm 14. so that was Serena was it sorry Serena Serena did, did this the lawsuit, lawsuit saying that How you have to let me in even though I'm so at that stage Venus will have already become pro right so yeah. maybe that was the reason because yeah in the movie a lot of it is about how he doesn't want them to become pros he doesn't really? he don't want them to play any matches until they become professional really oh, they play yeah. when they're like 10 years old and then they don't play again until they're professional oh. except they, they play with him don't they're they? allowed they to practice they practice yeah they never touched a racket again but how do you go pro without going up a system to get to the well they pro? were so good right they, they basically had a pro um uh, they had a tra trainer hmm. uh, and they were really really good and um, there was one game one of her first ever games Venus she lost against Arantxa Sanchez Vicario and this is part of the movie and, and they kind of slightly change what happened in the movie but anyway she lost this game and then they interviewed her afterwards and said well you know how is this um, loss against one of the best players in the world how is it compared to the other times when you've lost in other games and she went well I've never lost before <laughs> <laughs> and she'd never lost a match in any of her junior things and then she wow. stopped playing and then she became pro and wow. so yeah she'd never ever lost a match before at that stage amazing wow. yeah so um richard the dad he mm. basically decided that he was going to turn his two girls and he had a family before this was his second marriage and a new um, two new kids mm. to the family he was watching tv and he saw that a tennis player could earn forty thousand dollars a week and he thought oh my god that sounds amazing i'm going to train my girls up to do that and he wrote up this 78 page training manual for serena and venus wow. that he had you know everything that he'd learned in there and how he needed them to be he did a really interesting thing and i say interesting it's, it's terrible uh he had his kids play venus and serena out in the public and he would pay local kids to come and jeer at them to yell at them as they were playing so that they could get used to the idea of crowds being against them and having to push wow. through it. And so oh my there, God. There are people out there right now who have an anecdote, which is I, used, I was paid as a child to that jeer at Serena. I think my family might have been doing that <laughs> at, um, at fish gigs. What kind Whenever. of prodigy were they attempting to turn you into and where did it go wrong? <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that there is a tree in Pakistan that has been under arrest for more than 120 years. <laughs> and still no charges brought? No. Wow. It's, that's it's, Tony Blair levels of, um, you know, 
What's it? What's it called? The thing that Tony habeas Blair did? Corpus. Habeas corpus suspension. That is such an obscure reference to <laughs> Blair era Home Office policy. Guys, we all remember it. And oh, we're all sorry. Still outraged. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> yes. Um, apparently, no habeas corpus when it comes to trees in Pakistan. Um, this is, well, is this true? I mean, there is a tree. <laughs> There's a tree in Pakistan that is undoubtedly true. Yeah, uh, it's a banyan tree. Uh, it's undoubtedly true that the tree is chained up. Yeah, and it's undoubtedly true that there is a board on the tree that says, "I am under arrest." Uh, one evening, a British officer, heavily drunk, thought I was moving from my original location and ordered mess sergeant to arrest me. And since then, I am under arrest. Mm, All that is sorry. true. Um, this officer is supposedly called James Squid. <laughs> I have no evidence that there was ever anyone called James Squid. I looked as well. I couldn't yeah, find nothing anything. in the newspaper archives. Nothing on. Nothing in old books. Nothing like. Also, it just mm. feels like Squid wasn't anyone's surname. Well. It, it is. There are people called Squid. I looked oh, on yeah. one of those genealogy websites where you can see families. Yeah. Squid was a surname right. back in the day, but there's no notable squids. If you go to Wikipedia, notable squids. Notable squids. <laughs> Empty page. Empty page. Wow. <laughs> Sorted out. Um, the squids. Jimmy Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's only interested in the larger marine mammals. So. Wow, um, James. But yeah, Squid. and yeah. this is a thing that certainly the people who live in Landi Qatar, which is the place where this tree is, uh, which is in the Khyber region of northern Pakistan near the border with Afghanistan, the people there, it's the story, the local mm. story is that this happened. And I think one reason possibly that it's still there is they wanted to remind people of the, you know, the colonial times and the and the the bad things that the British colonists brought yeah. to the area and yeah, remember the bad times. I've got a question. Yeah. What's it chained to? The ground. The ground. I see. That, and the reason it's chained to the, chained to the ground is because so that it can't run away. Yeah. Because the reason James Squid had it arrested is while he was riding home one night. Yeah. It leapt at him. It made a sudden movement, and he yes. did whoa there. And it was quite a windy night, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he claims drunkenly, supposedly drunkenly, and I say supposedly, it's about a possible fictional human. Um, <laughs> this possible fictional human was... We don't even sounds... believe the fictional human's drunk story. <laughs> sounds like James Squid has a lot of questions to answer himself. Yeah. <laughs> but can't answer them. But yeah, it's said to have... Yeah, well, yeah. they, they can walk, can't they? They can. Trees. Yeah. So, yeah, and they do true. walk quite slowly. Sorry, can we unpack this a bit? Mm, yeah, so they possibly don't walk fast enough to jump out at you on a dark night, but they are an extraordinary tree. They're known as strangler figs because the way they grow is they start out as a seed that's pooed out of a bird or whatever or blown onto the branch of another tree, and then they drop their roots from that branch. The, that's the crate I... I, I, have you guys heard that before? I'd yeah. never heard of that. That is extraordinary. It just yeah. takes over a tree from the outside. Yeah. It's very it cool. Kills it. Yeah, and it kills. Yes, the and, then, they... and then it it kills the inner tree. Mm. The uh, banyan then becomes what's called a columnar tree. So there's a hollow column in the middle of it where the previous tree was, and then all sorts of animals get to live inside yeah. that hollow bit. It's like the magic faraway tree. Was um, walking? Yeah, the walking? Is, I still don't believe they walk. So the walking is if you've you've got your original root that's been dropped from the you know from the branch of a tree, um, and that embeds itself, and that's essentially the trunk, and then it's rooted into the ground, right. and then it grows up again from the roots, and it grows out. So you have these things that look like forests of lots of trees that are just one tree because it keeps on growing up from the roots, and then dropping roots down again, and then going up again, and then often the original trunk will get diseased and have to be removed 
And then I say that that's walking because it's lifted up that leg and taken it out of that position and moved it to the next position. It hasn't moved it to the next position. It's just been removed. It's, oh, just, yeah. di- it's just died and been amputated. new trunk. It's grown another leg. Yeah, the, um, yeah. the roots that come down, one of those will become the major trunk. Yes, it's that's like right. I was we... forgetting that definition of walking where I have my leg amputated, but then I grow a new leg, which I, I put somewhere slightly different. <laughs> and then do this do a series of times over a century and end up going about 10 feet. Ah, yes, walking. Love to go for a walk. <laughs> Look, when you're a tree, you have to take everything you get, right? That's true, that's true. It's not running. (laughs) I saw a massive banyan tree this morning. Yeah? It's humongous. It's in India. How big? It's, uh, we're talking about 4.7 acres. And, but this is how big it is with what Anna was mentioning about the idea that these roots grow back out Mm. through the ground. So they're called aerial roots. Um, They look like their own trees. This one has 2,800 of them. That's how many it's grown. And the original trunk, like Anna was mentioning about the other one, also has been diseased and chopped away. So even the original leg is no longer there. They're pretty amazing. They're so big that these trees, these really, really massive ones, I read can shelter 20,000 people. So let's say it's raining what? and you're with 19,999 friends and you all need to keep dry. You can just all slip underneath one of these trees. Or you're Jack Foley. You've just pulled off a job and you need to make it sound like there are 20,000 of you hiding under a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 20,000 people though. That is a lot of people. That's a lot. That's like... If you think of most lower division football stadiums, Tranmere Rovers, who I support, like that's twice as many, more than twice as many of people who go and watch Tranmere every week. So all, so people could leave Tranmere one week and all hide under the same tree, and the next week a completely different <laughs> crowd of fans could turn up, join the initial crowd under the previous tree. And the other crowd are like, "What was the score? Because we just missed the match because we're hiding under this tree." <laughs> or in fact, because I think the biggest one is about three football pitches, so you could all crowd around the outside of the tree and then three teams could play three different matches underneath it although there are shed loads of branches in the way so actually that wouldn't work hang on three football pitches you can get six teams on there can't you that's such good football I'm knowledge. not a football expert well, but I think you can have two teams on the same pitch if no, it's a really exciting match so there's a story that there's a prison in the Shabakwadar area and it's called Shabakwadar Fort and in the 1800s, 1840, there was a group of warriors that attacked it and they went inside and there was a big clash and um, it went on all night long and the Sikh people who were in there fought back and they managed to, to get them out. But there was this huge thing going, how the hell did they get in here? Someone's responsible for this, they need to pay. And so they had a big court case, as it were, like a big inquisition into working out who did this. Yeah. And they came up with a verdict. And the verdict was it was the fault of the wooden doors that let them in. And as a result, the wooden doors have been arrested and have been hanging in the tower, chained up, much like this tree, ever since the 1840s, and they're still chained up. They're still under arrest. That's the scapegoat, isn't it? The scape door. Yes. Not the escape door. That's (laughs) awful if you try and get out through the scape door and you just walk into the floor repeatedly. (laughs) So, wow, this might be a a thing, like a trend of, of chaining up. Um, trees or wood yes as in I've not heard of it happening anywhere else I did look for arrested trees and it's you don't find any others no no and this slightly predates your tree as well by about 40 years or so and also these are wooden doors so they were trees a lot before that yeah (laughs) we don't know how old the doors were no we don't know food for thought (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, um, do you know some banyan trees have bells hanging off them so you can ring the bell to access the spirit at the top of them? Cool. Do they? What, yeah. What is the spirit? Cool. Uh, is, is it a helpful spirit? A, a goddess. Well, they're very sacred, so yeah, it's, mm. po- it's a positive thing. Oh, um, there's lots of mythology around them because they are quite extraordinary trees. Um, they feature quite heavily in Hindu mythology. In mm. fact, mm. I think um, there's a Hindu texts from like 500 BC that say the entire universe is an upside down banyan tree. And so it's growing from the heavens down to us and then it's leaves are little aphorisms little bits of wisdom and there's I mean women wrap threads around them don't they there's a festival in India um, Vat Purnima which I think means banyan full moon and married women go for three days and hang out with banyan trees wrapping threads around them as a way of why because uh, they love their husband so much it's really uh, gross there is yeah I, a lot of it is it's a bit like um, what do you call like a Hindu almost right because all the women go together but a married yeah, like, woman but there's Hindu. only married yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a that's an in, I reckon that's the next place for the Hindu market to go the banyan trees no just like uh, married Hindus I think that could be a huge thing mm, yeah. so what are you celebrating then I'm getting away from your husband for a bit. Probably. Yeah, nice. Yeah. No, how, I think how much is... you love him. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it, that's how it's sold. But everyone who goes on it knows we're we're going for a fun. Well, if party. we love our husband so much, why are we go to a strip club in Blackpool? <laughs> <laughs> so, sometimes there's a tree you, in the middle of it. You need <laughs> you stop tying ribbons to that <laughs> <laughs> to that guy's trunk. <laughs> oh my they... god, he's got an aerial route. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that Pad Thai was invented as part of a fascist government initiative. Wow. (laughs) And every time you eat it, you are supporting fascism. Oh, shit. Yeah, I know. Awkward, because it's delicious. Mm. When was the last time you all had Pad Thai? I reckon I had it this weekend. About two weeks ago. Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I've ever had. Pad well, you're Thai. very liberal, aren't you? Andy? Yeah, because of my principles. <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing thing. It's um, it's from Thailand, hence the name, and it was essentially invented, sort of, by the leader of Thailand, a guy called Feeban, full name Luang Feeban Songkram, and he was a big populist leader in the 1930s, that era of big populist leaders who became fascists. And Thank so, God we got out of that era. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> How times have changed. And he became essentially dictator of Thailand in 1938, and he was very anti-China, a very nationalist, as was the way with sort of fascist-leaning dictators. And he wanted to stamp Thai-ness onto everything and make everything very Thai. There were loads of Chinese people in Thailand at the time. They tended to sell most of the street food, for instance. So Mm. all the food had Chinese influences. He wanted to scratch that and create this new dish. And it's not totally clear who invented it. His son claims that it was in their household that it was invented. And they used to have it as a family together. Other people say maybe he ran a competition to invent it. But essentially, he published and promoted this recipe for Pad Thai to incorporate lots of nice Thai tweaks and made everyone eat it. That's yeah. interesting. I I did read that it's not Thai, that it's that it's a Chinese meal which has been sort of adopted. Um, did you see that? Well, it is. It, is, it has yeah. 
because China and Thailand are all kind of like noodle or rice based stuff it does use yeah like Chinese noodles it basically took Chinese noodle dishes and added lots of Thai-ness to it so the Thai bits are things like the palm sugar um, that real nice sweet sugariness mm. the chilli tamarind flavour that you get mm, yeah. that was all Thai also bean sprouts you don't really is very Thai okay yeah. which is on top but yeah it wasn't like a pizza they could they had to work with what they had and what they had <laughs> was the same ingredients as Chinese food yeah actually um, you were saying about the food vendors um all being chinese any foreign food vendors were banned by feeban yeah he said you're not allowed to do that and the government kind of bought a load of food carts and then got people to run them and said right you've got to sell pad thai from these food carts um they made it so that everyone had to eat at certain times every day and you were allowed no more than four meals a day um, because this was the Thai way as opposed to the Chinese way. Um, you were supposed it's not to... not that rigorous, is it? How many, no how many meals, meals a day? <laughs> <laughs> I like, well, uh, are snacks allowed? I think I don't know, I don't know. Because I, I have so. some pretty hefty snacks. You yeah, know, I only I have know. three meals a day, but if you add in snacks, I'm, I'm shading six. I think you're not allowed. You wouldn't be allowed in... Um, 1930s Thailand he was the one who changed the name to Thailand from Siam yes Mm. Uh, he mandated that everyone had to sleep six to eight hours a day uh, which apparently was also a Thai thing as opposed to a Chinese thing and he said that everyone had to wear hats how long were the Chinese yeah. eating 15 meals a day and sleeping for 21 hours? It appears that way. <laughs> it's it wasn't yeah. even just hats. You had to make sure you wore shoes. If there were photos of people without hats and shoes in them, they were painted on onto the actual photo really? itself. <laughs> yeah, there were all these like, he made sure that, and this was an order, that you had to kiss. This is if you were a male worker, you had to kiss your wife before you left for work. That was yeah. part of the mandate. <laughs> um, and I, if, think, I, I do think that's nice. Yeah, but I mean, it's I don't, not I don't, if you have to. You it have takes to, the meaning no. off. It, you're it? Absolutely if right. you go to work and give your wife a kiss and she's she knows that if you don't do it you're going to be arrested i think it takes you're a lot right of love you're out. right yeah. and sometimes you've had a tiff and you you actually want to make a point yeah well then you, you know? can and you're like i hate garlic. you so much <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to... to be arrested by the fascist government of thailand <laughs> that actually it really makes the point much more effectively yeah yeah, yeah. 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 they're just saying sorry train gotta gotta, gotta go <laughs> Well, uh, the reason we all think it's nice is because we are Westerners, yeah. and that's why he was trying to. Oh, he was trying to Westernize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was just absolutely bang on classic. Um, but like desperately trying to Westernize and modernize, partly because partly our fault. He came about um, because because Thailand or Siam had never been conquered, never really um, been colonized by the West, unlike pretty much everywhere else. Sounds in like that it area. was explicitly not our fault. No, but wait for it. <laughs> oh no! It, it felt like they were in danger of being colonized because we weren't over that phase of history at the time, and they were like the reason we haven't been colonized is because we're really cultured we're civilized you know westerners think that we don't need to be colonized and we need to kind of persuade the west not to invade us by westernizing and modernizing massively and that's going to mean kissing our wives and that's why the brits didn't invade thailand we saw they were kissing their wives as they left and that was the that was the idea and wearing hats and wearing hats yeah <laughs> can't possibly arrest all these good chaps who are going around wearing hats and kissing their wives precisely wow You've got the British mentality of the 1930s <laughs> yeah it's not the first time I've heard that either um, <laughs> he banned listening to American and European music though why okay. would he do that well Wouldn't again that he wanted more? to get the Thai culture he ordered every single household to have a picture of him in their homes classic fascist behaviour mm. that's uh, vintage stuff and also um, 
theatre and cinema audiences had to bow to an image of him before each viewing of the screening of the film or, or performance of the really? play. Oh, well, yeah. that's fine, because I... 19, <laughs> is it? Well, 1937 You're going to bow theater. to Boris Johnson before you see One Man, Two Governors? <laughs> You've got to stand up and, and sing God Save the Queen in the cinemas before a movie and yeah, at the end of a movie. Did. That's yeah. what happened here. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's not any it's, different. That's the same thing, yeah. 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 He had to use forks and spoons. National cutlery. Got rid of chopsticks. Again, it's this weird hybrid of uh, persuading the West mm. uh, that we're Westernized and modern, but also keeping real Thai-ness. Yeah. Thai food with forks and spoons. Mm. And also, they went through all these popular songs and they took out, if any like popular folk songs mentioned other ethnicities that weren't Thai, they were rewritten. So like La, if you were Lao or if you were Burmese, because there were lots of different ethnicities in Thailand at yeah. the time, uh, then couldn't sing it anymore. Really? Wow. So if you had like the song The Irish Rover... Did they rewrite it as the Thai Rover? Yeah, and, and that was like one that. of the most popular songs at the time. So. <laughs> I can't think of any other songs which had an ethnicity in them. Let's see. But so it, they would send the artist back into the studio. It wouldn't be like the DJ at the radio station would just come in and just say a new word over a song playing. Well, this is where Andy's Foley artist comes in, isn't it? Um, they, they employed Jack Foley to say the word Thai over everything else. Actually, it doesn't sound like Thai. If you say the word Thai, you have to say the word Swiss because that better creates the sound of the word Thai. Um, anyway, he was a fascist bad guy. Yeah, they had a noodle song as well. Did they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thai, it's, do you want to hear it? Yep. Yes, please. No- it sounds I so want fun. Two, three, four. <laughs> noodles, noodles, noodles. It's how it starts. Thai vegetables are wealth in the ground. You can find it anywhere. Keep buying and selling as Thai people always help each other. Noodles, noodles. I imagine something's been lost in translation, but... uh... (laughs) The tune. (laughs) Do you know we've only just worked out how to break a noodle in half? (laughs) Not true. Scientists have... Well, okay, 2018. (laughs) Okay, okay. Four years ago, this is like a, a straight noodle or a bit of spaghetti, and it's just impossible to snap it in half. Yeah. If you try doing it. Oh yeah. It's well, really interesting. If you're at home now, like get a piece of long piece of spaghetto, a long spaghetto. <laughs> <laughs> you hold both ends of it and then start to bend, right, until it snaps. You'll find that the two bits in your hand stay in your hand, and then the bit in the middle comes out, so it mm. doesn't break into two pieces it always breaks into three it's really interesting that is interesting although if you hold it in the middle you're you can yeah 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 that's that's what they learned in 2018 (laughs) (laughs) Andy, if you've been there i mean you could have saved thousands of pounds a really famous scientist richard feynman was he was obsessed with this problem so he used to stay up all night repeatedly snapping (laughs) strands of spaghetti you know incredibly famous physicist richard feynman wow Um, and he died in what the 80s or 90s so he oh, never, he yeah. never he's not alive to so see the 2018 innovation what happened died clutch well he died clutching a noodle uh, it flew into his eye and through <laughs> um, to his brain uh, we figured out why you can't do it in 2006 and that's to do with this kickback wave that travels um, through the spaghetti when you snap it and smashes it up uh, but it then took another 12 years to figure out how to overcome it the way you overcome it is you twist the spaghetti 280 degrees uh, so almost a full all the way around right. um, and then you break it gently slowly okay. and that solves your problem yeah and I think if you are at home and you do try that sometimes you break it and it does go into two and you're really disappointed but I think that might be because you've got either too much or too little moisture in your spaghetti 
Yeah. What, what, yeah. If you try it just without. If the you twist. try, I'm just saying, don't write in. If yeah. you break no. your spaghetti Very and it breaks point. it too straight away, yeah. then don't write in. Mm. It's your fault, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, are there any? It feels like a stupid question. Are there any applications for this? Yeah, loads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably military. PAE systems have probably bought it. We yeah. can make drones out of um, right. snap spaghetti now. Yeah. Is, you, it, oh, go on. is it the same principle for anything that is one big long stick? As in, I'm trying to think of someone doing a Lolly. pole vault. No, sorry. Um, a pole vault. No, a no, vaulting not, pole. Yeah, yeah, a vaulting pole. They're at one end, really? the others, and we do see them snap, and they tend to snap in two. I think. Do they snap? Yeah. Um, they have snapped huh. from time to time. Uh, no, I think it's because the spaghetti has got a certain tensile strength that it works mm. particularly well with that, okay. I think. Um, okay, how about in uh, last year, a woman was burgled in... Um, a helicopter was dispatched to the scene of this burglary. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. And That's a, so, so it wasn't in Britain then? <laughs> Night, what, because of police funding? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only thing <laughs> we're allowed to make references to Tony Blair's home office habeas corpus policies but I'm not allowed to comment on police cuts Can now I just say how many police cuts do you think you would not have to have before we could get a helicopter going to every burglary that happens all I'm saying is James when I stand for election that's going to be one of my flagship policies chopper at your house within seven minutes of the burglary happening well this actually this story does reek of an overfunded police force because the only things that were stolen were eight pot noodles. And, <laughs> okay. <laughs> not just individual noodles, pot noodles, but like, you know. They dispatched a helicopter. Packets. Um, I don't think they knew at the time that it was just pot noodles that had been taken. A was, woman just like, saw. Who's, was, it, was this woman the queen? <laughs> yeah, she but loved Didn't we learn noodles. earlier that they were using helicopters to lift up pilchards from the water? Yeah, Nutty Noah. So, you know, it's like... What are you saying? We've got spare helicopters oh, coming out of our yeah, own. Seems like it. Yeah. Um, I think she didn't know at the time. She just saw this burglar in her garden, having leapt out of her house, I guess, called the police. They were like, oh, oh God, yeah, emergency. Yeah. And it was only later when they interviewed her, they said, what's been taken? And she said, well, actually, eight pot noodles. Um, and she said they took all the beef and tomato flavoured ones, but didn't take the chicken and mushroom ones. Ah, uh-huh. really? Yeah. That... Yeah, I understand that. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, have you heard of what and a panic? No. <sighs> say it again. What and a panic? No, no. What and a? Um, it's in Thailand. It's a noodle soup joint. Uh, maybe the Watana family, I don't know. Um, but it's a place where you can buy noodle soup. And they're one of these places where every day they take the last bit of the previous soup and put it into oh. the next soup. Mm. Like a perpetual soup. And so whenever you, whatever you buy, if you get some of this beef noodles, you might be having stuff from, you know, oh, 50 so years ago. Isn't it cool? How, do really we know cool. how long it's been going on? Uh, it's been going three generations. Wow. Uh, we think 45 years cool. and counting. Um, but I was reading about these perpetual soups and there's some claims. Um, <laughs> one of them, apparently, there was, there's one story that there was a perpetual stew in Perpignan in France um, that was going from the 15th century until World War II. <laughs> <laughs> what then the Nazis bombed it they ran out of ingredients due to wow. the German occupation oh, and kidding. had to stop the stew oh. you could just water it I would have thought you could just water it down until it's 
basically water, but keep the stew. Technically, it's still the stew, yeah. but yeah. they've got bigger. Th- you've got bigger things on your mind when when the Nazis are rolling in. So that's fair enough. Yeah, you do. There was I one in Normandy. Um, that apparently was over 300 years old. This is according to an, this is an article in a newspaper called the Navhin Times, which is from Goa. And I couldn't find it anywhere else, so God knows if this is true. They've got an unbelievably good Normandy correspondent. <laughs> Wait till I tell you what it is, because it's so unlikely. But also, what a weird thing to make up. They said that in Normandy, they had a, um, a pot which had been bubbling away for over 300 years. Uh, it was in a Cistercian Abbey, and researchers went into this soup yeah. and like took some tests and they said that there were still some ingredients in there that had been in the stew for 350 years what? James what you're reading is the Indian equivalent of the Daily Express <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it is like that thing isn't it where if you every glass of water you drink has been through a dinosaur yeah okay or and Hitler and Hitler yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. Which Wait. is why I've stopped drinking water, actually. <laughs> yeah. Is there a filter for that? <laughs> Fiddler, it's called. It hasn't been through... I mean, Hitler didn't drink that much. I don't think every glass of water... I think he was teetotal. So is, dr- is that a thing that like, there's enough... There's enough molecules. molecules. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I just remembered it's not the whole glass of water. <laughs> it's one molecule. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All the previous episodes are up there, so do check them out. And we will be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>